All right, everybody, come on back. We have a special scripture reader this morning who hails from El Salvador. And she's going to do it all in Spanish. Just kidding. We'll have to have somebody interpret. Come on back. We're not making anybody switch seats this morning. So sit wherever you want to sit and it'll be fine. Okay? Kara, come on. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I'm going to read some scriptures this morning. The first one is from Genesis chapter 9. Verse 8 through 17. If you have a Bible, you can look it up. Not sure. You still have the, the same Bibles from when I was at yep. Storyland? Some of them are nothing. I was at Storyland in 2008 or 9, so I was one of the first ones. Mm-hmm. So it says, Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, and all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by waters of a flood. Never again will will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then God said, This is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the earth, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all the living creatures of every kind on earth. So God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. And the next reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 through 18. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is, is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But when, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. (laughs) 
again. Hi. Uh, at the beginning of this new year, we are having a conversation about why. Uh, why we do what we do, what our core motivations are, what our posture is in the world. Um, rather than starting with how or with what, we want to start with why. Uh, and a lot of us personally are thinking about that at the beginning of a new year as well. What's this year going to be like? What kind of person am I going to grow to become this year? Uh, what, what kind of follower of Jesus do I want to be in my family, in my workplace, in my neighborhood? And so starting with why, personally, is a good thing for us to do. Why? Uh, why, why do this? Why head in this direction? And so uh, we're in the midst. Actually, we're wrapping up a conversation about six motivations that move us to do what we do and that drive us personally as followers of Jesus and they drive us together as a community. Um, Today is the sixth and final motivation. It's appropriate that it comes on this first Sunday of Lent and it is becoming like Jesus. In the words of Chris Farley, I have what doctors call a little bit of a weight problem. It's been a thing for me. No, seriously. It's been a thing for me since uh, my grandmother gave me a dollar every day in the summer of 1990 to walk to the grocery store and to buy three candy bars. That's right. Three candy bars for a dollar, and that's right, every day. Um, That summer was the beginning of the love affair for me, and also of some significant weight gain. Uh, Over time, food became a coping mechanism for me. All of us have them, I suspect, in some form or fashion. Some are healthier and less healthy versions Uh, It's what we do when we face challenging circumstances or more accurately, when we face challenging feelings like fear or overwhelmingness, anxiety, anger, loneliness or depression. Coping mechanism, uh, coping mechanisms can help us escape or numb the pain. We can also use them to celebrate when things go well, when we feel happiness to reward ourselves. It's like the grown-up version of my kid's blankie. You suck your thumb, you rub your finger on the side of your nose, and you feel better. Except when you're an adult, the consequences and side effects are a lot stiffer than a slight gap in your teeth and chapped lips and a raw thumb. In the case of food, you face the threat of premature death by something like heart disease or diabetes, drugs, alcohol, porn, buying stuff, whatever. Pick your poison. All of these coping mechanisms have very real physical and social ramifications. At the extreme, these habits can enslave us. They can make us miserable. I've done any number of diet and exercise regimens over the years. And this past fall, I hired a nutritionist for the first time. I've been working with her for a few months. And as I've told some of you, it didn't take very long for the real Charles to come out. 
By that, I mean the Charles that eats whatever he wants, regardless of how much he's paying a nutritionist and regardless of what it's doing to him. Uh, I probably know more about nutrition now than lots of skinny people, right? But somehow that nutritional knowledge has not resulted in physical transformation, at least yet. I had a moment of real clarity on one of our calls a couple months ago. My nutritionist, she's basically my therapist, too. She kept asking me why, which is not the best question if you're a therapist to ask. Um, but she kept saying, why? Why does this keep happening? Why do you get off track so easily? Why do you keep eating these foods? I was determined to be honest because I thought, well, that's probably better than just being dishonest or deceiving her. And so I told her the truth. I don't want to. I don't want to. There it is. Lurking beneath the surface of all my manifestations of brokenness is pure and unadulterated desire. I've since labeled it the I don't give a darn impulse. That's the slightly edited version. Or phrased a little differently, I can do whatever the heck I want. Again, slightly edited. Because at the end of the day, sometimes I just don't give a darn and I do whatever the heck I want. And unless I experience some change on the level of my desire, it doesn't it doesn't matter how much nutrition knowledge I acquire, how many diets I attempt, how many experts or accountability I seek out. It ain't going to happen, Captain. I'm not going to change. The ancient Hebrews called the seat of desire the heart. Disordered desire, a disordered heart, is a fundamental obstacle, if not the fundamental obstacle to becoming better people. People of character, people of self-giving love and reconciliation, people who are like Jesus. Because at the end of the day, if we don't want to, if we end up doing whatever the heck we want, we're not going to experience transformation into Christ-likeness in the deepest parts of ourselves, namely our hearts. Because it's hard. Self-giving love is not our default most of the time. And so we've got to find a way to address ourselves, to let God address us on the level of our desires. I've had two conversations lately about God and religion with different agnostic friends of mine Uh, Both of them 20-somethings. Both of them said something to the effect of, I don't really know what I believe about God right now, but I just want to be a good person. I want to do right by people. And both of them admirably have chosen vocations that serve people in need because of that. And the subtext of their comments seems to be, at least one of them seems to be that religion doesn't always help people be better people. Sometimes religion makes you a worse person and they're not interested in that. And I sadly have to agree with them on some level. It's true, at least some. And I really admire this motive in both of them because they could just as easily say to heck with it. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to live my life to the full. But they don't. There's something in them that drives them to want to be good and to want to do right by other people. But certainly they face the same challenges that we do 
when it comes to being good people? What about the parts of us that aren't good, that don't want to be good or do right by other people? What resource do we draw upon when our willpower isn't getting it done? What about you? What obstacles to becoming like Jesus do you see? What obstacles to becoming like Jesus do you see? And if you're visiting, we, we talk during the message. So if you've got something you want to say, these are not rhetorical questions. You can chime in. Yes. What obstacles to becoming like Jesus do you see? I think, um, I think what I have to say is better than what's going to actually come out. Um, That's my whole life, brother. <laughs> like I, I think about sort of I, being, being able to identify who I am, um, that I'm constantly negotiating like the versions of myself that I project because I want other people like me or... That, that actually getting to the heart of who I am mm. is hard for me to see. Mm. So for God to transform those um, is, is difficult because sometimes I don't even know who I am. Mm. I'm so blinded by all the different versions of myself mm. that I want to project to other people. So mm. Not knowing myself fully, taking the time to really ask the question, okay, who am I, what am I doing, why, um, uh, is an obstacle for me. Yeah. Being like Jesus. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I was going to say uh, a similar thing is that, you know, myself is the obstacle. Uh, that um, it's only when I can be uh, brutally honest with myself and all the ugly parts of me, the things that I actually think or the things that I actually believe about myself, um, uh, it's only when I when I can choose to pay attention uh, to my heart and to what's really going on inside, um, you know, and fillet that sucker open, mm. uh, that there's uh, there, there's any room for change or transformation mm. or paying attention to other people. Yeah, really. yeah, that's good. Charles, I will change next year. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ed. We'll, we'll look forward to that. <laughs> yeah, John. So the question is what? Um, what, what are the obstacles? What, what's an obstacle that you see that keeps us from becoming like Jesus? Well, for me, it's just pride and laziness and work policy. You want to dig into that at all? No. Okay. Pride, laziness, yeah. workaholism. Yeah. That's a combination. It's a, it's a dandy stew. Yeah. It yeah. Yeah. Right on. Thanks for sharing. Here? Constant temptation. Okay. Yeah. Being bombarded with temptation. There's always the alternative to the good. Yeah. Control. Control. Okay. In what sense? Um, always wanting to um, be able to control every situation that there is mm-hmm. instead of trusting God with it and letting Him have it. <coughs> Just need to have some control over, sure. that, over that. Yeah. Letting it go. Right. Care? For me, it's kind of busyness. Mm. I think it becomes a, a thing for me where I can 
like what y'all were saying about um, you, you have to take time to really deeply look into your own heart and motives and um, and when you're busy you don't have to do that yeah. and, uh, it becomes uh, an easy way out to make you feel good about yourself yeah yeah, but, um, in some sense, busyness can uh, be an escape from acknowledging what might be going on beneath the surface. Yeah, because you pretend like doing makes you a good person. Yeah, yeah, wow. Uh, Israel's greatest story is the story of the Exodus, the time when God delivered Israel from slavery and bondage to Egypt. And he leads them through the Red Sea, He defeats Pharaoh and his armies, and he gives them a new land, at least eventually. But before taking them to this new land, God took them to a mountain called Sinai, where he introduced himself in so many terms. Uh, God hangs out on the top of this mountain, and it's cloaked in fire and smoke, and Israel's leader, Moses, ascends for 40 days, and then he descends with the Ten Commandments chiseled in these two tablets. These are the terms of their covenant or agreement of relationship with God. This is how Israel was to live righteously since God had so graciously saved them from bondage. Only problem was Israel had a short attention span spiritually and Moses found them 40 days later uh, worshiping this golden calf that Moses' brother Aaron had helped him make. Thanks a lot, Aaron. So Moses gets so angry, he throws these tablets against the, mat, the, the mountain and they shatter. Lots of drama ensues. Some people die. Moses goes back up the mountain for 40 days, convinces God not to annihilate them, and then asks God to show Moses his glory. And so God passes by Moses and reveals to him that he is loving and compassionate and forgiving and just. Moses comes back down the mountain again with the Ten Commandments of the Covenant. And this time Israel is not worshiping a golden calf. And Israel notices something that Moses was not aware of. His face was glowing. It was radiant with light. Apparently, some of God's glory had rubbed off on Moses while he was up on that mountain. And interestingly, they did not like it. They were afraid, Exodus 34 says, perhaps because of the idolatry that they'd just been involved in. So they asked Moses to cover his face with a veil so they wouldn't have to look at this bright, glowing, glorious thing. Uh, So every time that Moses would meet with God, go to the tent of meeting or go back up the mountain, he would take the veil off, hang out with God, get some glory recharge, come back down, put the veil back on so as not to overwhelm the people with the radiance of God's glory. Paul draws on this story when he's defending himself to the church in Corinth, that text that we read, 2 Corinthians 3, and I'm going to hunker a little bit. In this text, so if you want to get there in your phone or um, in a Bible, I'm going to I'm going to kind of step through this a little bit, um, starting, I think, in verse 12. 
he says that he and his comrades were bold in their ministry. Unlike Moses, who wore this veil to keep people from seeing the radiance that was fading. Um, this, this fading was a symbol of Moses's covenant and the law that it was temporary and that it was fading as well, according to Paul. Then Paul goes on to apply this story about the veil in a different way. When Jewish folk hear the law read, a veil covers their hearts. A veil covers their hearts. So he's taking this story and just taking the veil and let's put that somewhere else. I think it goes on Israel's hearts whenever the law is read. A veil covers the seat of their desires and keeps them from beholding God's glory and experiencing transformation. Why does a veil cover their heart of all things when they hear the law read? Perhaps because a law code only functions on the level of behavior. What you should do or not do. It doesn't function on the level of the heart, at the level of desire, and what motivates us to do what we do. And this yearning for something deeper than the law, it's not new with Jesus or Paul. The Hebrew prophets, when they were faced with Israel's brokenness and injustice, they longed for the day when God's will would be internalized in the hearts of people and not just exist in some external law code. Jeremiah, we've got a slide, John. Jeremiah prophesied, the day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Language of the covenant, I'll be their God and they'll be my people. Paul says this prophecy is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 3 verse 16, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away and the heart is able to behold the glory of God in the person of Christ. How exactly is the veil taken away? Well, it has something to do with the Spirit of God, because the next verse says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So Paul's talking about the Spirit. He's already said some things about the Spirit earlier in his letter, and he's kind of building on what he said earlier. Um, Listen to what he says in chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 about the Spirit. We've got a slide for that one, too. Now, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Notice the location of the spirit in our hearts. Paul, again, is echoing these great longings and prophecies of prophets like Ezekiel who heard God say that one day, we've got a slide, I will give you a new heart. There it is. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in in you and move you. This is language of motivation and desire. I'll move you 
to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And and this is freedom, incidentally, um, that is almost antithetically opposed to our American conceptions of freedom. American conceptions of freedom, and this is this is broad strokes, so I'm generalizing, but it's basically I can do whatever the heck I want to do. Uh, freedom in the spirit is kind of the opposite. It is it is um, the freedom from our selfishness, so that we can live in self-giving love toward other people, to look to the interests of others around us, and where the spirit of God is at work. There is this kind of freedom. Where is the spirit planted firmly in the hearts of those who turn to the Lord? The spirit removes the veil so that followers of Jesus can reflect the radiance of God's glory in their lives. The beautiful crescendo, this whole statement comes in verse 18. Because of the spirit's work to remove the veil over our hearts, we are all being transformed. Into Jesus's image with ever increasing glory, not glory that fades over time like Moses's face did, but glory that gets brighter and brighter and brighter and more reflective of the goodness and nature of Jesus in Christ is the transformation of our desires by the spirit in Christ is the transformation of I don't give a darn by the Spirit. In Christ is the transformation of I can do whatever the heck I want by the Spirit. In Christ is the transformation of our lives into the image of Jesus by the Spirit. We only need to get in touch with the Spirit of God within us to tap into God's great strength to shape and change our desire. So how? Please tell me. How do we do that? How do we make ourselves available to God for this kind of transformation? And I seriously want to tell I want you to tell me so I can take notes. Please tell me how do we do this? How do we make ourselves available to God's transforming power? Surrender. Surrender. Okay. Will be done. Done. Yes. And I, I hear in your comment there's some there's some practice um, of surrender. Like we're we're vocalizing that at least sometimes. Yeah? Daily devotions. Okay. I mean the core of daily devotion could be should be surrender my will to thy will. Sure. Simple city. Right on. Not Thank easy. you, John. Simple. Yes. Mm-hmm. Easy not simple. Simple not easy. Easy and simple not. Yep. Who else? Yes, sir. So, I like your initial, your opening story and your comparison of the struggle to get out of the way and deal with your own will and and become more like God to the struggle to eat better, Mm -hmm. right, and to to take that Mm -hmm. over. But I think there's a core difference in that and in any other, like, self-improvement type thing where what you have inside of you are two conflicting desires. You've got this one that's maybe, you know, more rational and it's something that's it's an aspirational desire. It's like, I want to be healthy, I want to do this. And then you have this other, like, no, I want to eat this right now. 
um, and you're trying to figure out how do I basically keep this other desire in mind, and it's, it comes through discipline and through work and through accountability and through all this stuff, and it's it can be difficult and it can be rewarding and it can be all of these things. Mm-hmm. The spiritual journey, at least from what I understand, the we do we don't do the work. We we let God do the work, and you know. I think we can fall into that trap of, well, this is going to be hard work. We're going to have to even make sure that I read my Bible a lot and pray a lot and have these devotional times and do this stuff and, and go out and serve people and do these things so that I can make myself like God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a trap that is very easy to fall into. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when really it's, it's just how do we, it's just getting ourselves out of the way and, and enabling God, or not enabling God, but. But try, stop trying to prevent God mm-hmm. from doing the work that He wants to do in us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, there is this this fundamental move in um, in Jesus following spirituality that is um, being available, opening mm-hmm. ourselves, um, o- opening our hands to God's power and God's work. I I would submit that. That that fundamental move um, is a part of any any effort or initiative that we would take to let go of coping mechanisms. I mean, in, it, as followers of Jesus, I mean, for me, I think that has to be a part of how I relate to food is opening to God and the transformation of my desire. You know, and, and for for all of us, whatever it might be, because um, ultimately, whether it's food or some other coping mechanism. Ultimately, that that those mechanisms hinder us from loving other people well um, or loving people fully. Um, but I think you're that's exactly what I'm driving at. What you're saying is that at the heart of it, there there is this move that that we are letting God do for us, and it's not something we can do for ourselves. We have to cooperate, um, but God does the heavy lifting. What what would y'all add to that, Barrett? Oh, you said cooperate, I'll just say participate. Like, yeah. It's, it's not something that I can hold on to and harass myself. Like you're, you're mm-hmm. saying, but it's something I can hold at least with open hands, right? And, and let God's work happen. Um, I, my intuition, my assumption, is having people change their entire life's orientation, the desires of their heart. Um, I, every time somebody convinces me of something rationally, like, oh, no, I can see that, my heart doesn't change. Um, when I experience something or when I experience somebody's story, I really, like, my empathy, like, allows me to have this experience mm-hmm. of something, my heart can change. Mm-hmm. Um, so, talking back to your first question, what gets in the way, for me, it's, you know, my, my childhood wound looks, it, the contours of that one look like shame, right? And so, this idea of God's glory rubbing off on me, completely antithetical. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for me to believe that that can even happen, mm-hmm. to even point myself in that direction, I have to have some, you can convince me that it can happen, and I can believe that God would do that, and that's what God wants to have happen, uh, but I'm not going to believe that I can, that that can even happen to me until I experience that happening in some hmm. way. Um, how, how do we get there? What does surrender look like with that? I don't know. Do I have to give up, uh, give up whatever ways I've understood myself in the past, like, right? Like, that, hmm. there, there's got to be some releasing of that and not holding on to that just get familiar. So not like a, like I have a cut in my leg and I just hold my hands over to protect it. I have to let my hands off of that 
so that the good physician can come and clean it and dress it and it can actually heal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know, like, like it's, uh, I, I feel like though there has to be some, there does have to be some surrender, there does have to be some releasing, but I also have to participate in some experience mm-hmm. for my heart to get that. Absolutely. Um, I grew up in a church culture that worships certainty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, That's that important. That we know, we know what the truth is with the capital mm-hmm. T, and if you don't believe it, then you're a sinner and you're going to hell. And that was our coping mechanism. Mm. Um, wow. So for me, learning to embrace doubt and learning to embrace a lack of certainty mm. has made room, I feel like, for God to do different things. Wow. That's good. Well, and I think we have to be mindful of, of what it is. It's, you know, the busy, the control, the food, whatever. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I have to be aware <coughs> that I have control issues, and I know where they come from. And so to me, it's when I find myself trying to take the control, if I'm mindful of and say to myself, Terry, you're trying to control this. And you know for what you don't have any control of this, and I'll let it go. And, and to me... Um, I, I'm really trying to practice more mindfulness and can really pay attention to what my mind, what my brain is saying to mm-hmm. myself mm-hmm. and to say, you need to let that go. Because until, to me, until I recognize that, until I recognize that I have that issue and I, I'm not saying God can't change that in me. But I think I do have to participate some, somehow, some way. And if that's that recognizing that where when I'm doing it, God speaks to my heart and says, Terry, you're trying to control this, and you need to let it go. And I have felt that he has said that to me before. And say, okay, I need to let this go. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be – it's going to be hard uh, because I know why I do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that then I have to make a decision. Am I going to let this go or I'm going to hang on to it? Or it's the beauty, or whatever it is. Mm. So we have to. I have to. I do have to do something. I have to let it go. Mm. I have to just say, I've got to let that go. I have no control over that. Yeah. Well, now I want to connect to that in a second because I think God is with you in the letting go too. God, God can help your letting go mechanism um, by the strength of the Spirit. You're still cooperating, but you have help even in that, which is good news. I saw one more hand over here. Jen, and then we'll we'll keep going. Um, I, I I see this picture of like the doors to my heart, so to speak. You know, and, you know, it's like it's like the doors with the windows. You know, I'm like, come on in, you know, come on in, God, look me over and do what you need to do. And like, the door, the door's locked. <laughs> the door's locked. I'm like, come on. <laughs> you know, like. Like, I want you to come in, but I'm like, have this preventative measure from you mm-hmm. actually coming in, mm-hmm. you know, and the, and, and the difference mm-hmm. that, that that feels like when the doors are actually unlocked, and it's like, oh my God, you know, and the door is open, and it's just like, you know, again, like this, this feeling of, all right, here it goes, mm-hmm. I don't even know what's going to happen now. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. That's a good image. Um, another image that came to me, Ted, as you were talking, that I found helpful is the image of a, a sailboat versus a rowboat. That, you know, lots of us has gro- have grown up in rowboat spirituality, which is like this. 
And sailboat spirituality is, all right, where's the sail? Let's raise it and catch the wind. Like our, our propulsion, our power to move. We have to raise the sail to catch the wind. But most of our power to move comes from the, 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 the wind of the Spirit to move us along. Yeah. And how messy that feels. That's never a straight line. No, yeah. We have to go this way. Touche. Oh, that's good. I hadn't even thought of that. Um, James Bryan Smith, we've got a slide about this too. If you haven't read this book, I recommend it. Um, it's called Good and Beautiful God. He talks about four ways that we can make ourselves available to God's transforming power. Um, four components of transformation. The first is narratives. What, what are the false narratives we're believing about ourselves and the world? And what are the narratives that come from Jesus? And how do those intersect? How do the narratives of Jesus change our narratives? Um, this is kind of... This is the, the battleground of the mind. Um, second is community. We can't do it without support, without encouragement from others. Um, this is why we have discipleship groups in Storyline, because this kind of environment is so important to spiritual formation. The third is what he calls soul training or essentially practices. It's why it's why. Um, uh, we have a way of life in storyline with some concrete practices that flesh out our commitments to these different motivations. Um, this is about the body. It's a sim- essentially the way that like Olympics, you know, we're in the Olympics now and uh, the Olympic skaters, they train and they train and they train uh, so that when they hit the ice for the performance, they don't have to think about it. They just, as the, the commentators would say, they just let the muscle memory kick in. And they let their body, their body is habituated to this movement and program. And um, that's the that's kind of the nature of practices. It's not very different in spiritual formation. Indirectly, we do these practices that help us to, to desire what we need to desire um, in in the moments of temptation. Um, and then the final component is the Holy Spirit. Um, all of this, unless the Holy Spirit is at work. To reshape our desire in the midst of these other three components. All of this probably won't work for very long. Um, My friend Brad taught me a very practical way to connect with the Holy Spirit. I met him through a Christian recovery ministry I was a part of several years ago. He was a 30-something recovering drug, alcohol, and sex addict. And he'd been sober for more than two years. Most days, Brad would practice the 11th step of the 12 steps which says we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. So many times I would hear Brad pray, God, just help me to know what you want for me today. And would you give me the strength to want what you want, to do what you want me to do? Uh, Very simple, but very powerful spiritual practice for connecting to the strength and power of God. That's that's one of the practices, along with these other components that got him in touch with God's spirit and brought about his transformation more so into the, the, the likeness of Christ. Here are the good news. If you have turned to the Lord Jesus and given your allegiance to him. He has given you his spirit to live in your heart 
and transform your desires so that you can live the good and beautiful life and so that you can help others to live the good and beautiful life. All you have to do is cooperate. All you have to do is participate. Can you receive the good news? Can you enter into that? And everybody said, Amen. We're going to have a time of prayer. And we open up the mic for anybody in the room who has a prayer on their heart that they would like to pray about. Uh, We have Kara with us, who's one of our partners in El Salvador um, with Project Red. If you know something about Project Red, would you come and pray for Kara and Project Red um, this morning during this time? And we'll we'll keep the mic open for several minutes. Um, Just come up and say your prayer and you can sit back down. And this is a way that we do prayers of the people together. So. Come on. God, I thank you for Kara and Project Red, and um, she's serving people in a um, maligned, at least in what we hear, um, country, but the people that she's working with are, um, they're doing amazing work for you, and it's it's just a beautiful place, Um, and I ask that you give her strength encourage and um, vision as she continues to um, move that organization uh, just in unbelievable ways with your with your help um, and just give give her um, give her many more years of, of working there it's exciting and um, we we're behind her and um, I just ask ask for that in Jesus' name. Spirit of God, I, uh, I thank you for attending to our hearts and our souls here in this space today. Um, I thank you for how you've made many of us well. I've been fighting off sickness. I thank you for the way you've uh, been healing members of my own family. Um, I've been sick over the last month or so. Uh, I know many are still fighting sickness in this community, Father, and I want to continue to pray for uh, you to, to send people and resources and, and, and whatever medicine uh, to help continue to get people well and uh, that people will pay attention to themselves to notice that they are sick. I mean, we've been talking about things inside of us that, that we're not attending to that can cause problems in our, our bodies here in this community, in this country, across the world. 
there are things getting around that get inside of us, and if we're not attending to them well, they can not only hurt our own lives and even cause death, but they can spread to others, Father. I pray that you will help us attend to each other well, that we can (laughs) become well, physically, um, for sure. Um, And then in that physical health, for you to continue to attend to to our hearts, that you will use this time today and the attending that we've done here together uh, to spread to others, God, to help attend to them um, with the ways in which we are held down by coping mechanisms or, or whatever our woundedness may be, that you will give us the knowledge of what we need to release to you. And you will give us the strength today to let us do that. God, I thank you for Storyline, and I thank you for every person that's um, walked through the doors, been apart, and I thank you for Charles and Paul and their families. So thankful for a calling that you put on people's hearts and for the wonderful um, ways in which your spirit works in this uh, community. I want to pray for a provision, um, financial provision, uh, provision of a place, provision of, um, of the right people who are, are in uh, spiritual need, that you would, um, that your will would be done. We pray that you would, um, guide the leaders, guide the entire community as a whole, and um, we thank you. We thank you so much for this place, for this um, decade of really wonderful work. Um, We're so thankful, and um, in your name we pray. God, um, I want to thank you that little Aiden Wise is home. Um, we thank you for that, God. And we pray that he would stay home for a while, um, that you would protect his health and the health of his family. God, we pray that you would be with him and that there would be a rest. Um, much rest, God. We love you. Just stay
Thank you, God, for hearing our prayers, the prayers that we said out loud, the prayers that are rumbling around in our hearts. Thank you for your work in our midst. And we we do continue to pray that your uh, your spirit would transform all of us uh, with ever increasing glory into the likeness of your son, Jesus, for the good of the world and for your glory. Christ, we pray. Amen. Don't, don't put that conversation online. No. It, it will-